Welcome to episode 108. Today, Larry Falazzo and Katie Hove Sidnetsky join us to talk about their second edition of the ESL ELL Teachers Survival Guide. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has many of you listening have been in the field for years. Think back to the first time you assumed this role. What was it like for you? For me, I felt like I was drowning in the ocean with no land in sight. What I thought I knew about teaching students did not work with multilingual students. I was completely at a loss. Now, imagine someone throwing you a life buoy. Larry and Katie's ESL ELL survival guide is the equivalent to a life buoy for teachers new to working with multilinguals. In this episode, you'll learn about the things that they kept and things that they added to this classic in our field. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so excited to have two legends in the field come join us. Today, Larry Falazzo is here with his co-writer, Katie Ho Sipneski, who have given and given and given to the field with their books, their articles, and their webinars. So Larry and Katie, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Well, thanks for having us. I think we're honored to for the receiving the invitation to on your yeah. podcast has been uh increasing in popularity uh over the past year oh i just follow in the footsteps of uh giants like you and katie so i knew about you and katie <laughs> about 14 years ago at a at a workshop someone at the end at the of the webinar i'm sorry at the myp workshop in indonesia he said hey if you want people to follow uh follow this educator from california and of course larry falazzo and i was like yes and then now he's now you're joining with now now you're joining Katie, so which is adding another perspective to it. So I knew you when back then. <laughs> and he's still the same guy. Yeah, we're only legends in our own minds. So. <laughs> well, you're a legend. You're in the minds of so many that are listening. I mean, just look at the reviews on all of your books. There are 300, 400 positive reviews of your books. Now, you know that to get one review, to get someone to stop writing and to go online to write a review is hard enough. To get 300 to 400, four to five star reviews on Amazon is an act of, that was worthy of applause. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the reason because you are still, you still are in the classes. You are still in the classroom. The things that you're doing that you share with your, when you share with us are the things you do with your kids. They're grounded exactly. in theory, but yet they're so practical. 
and they always go exactly the way we plan them to go. <laughs> Especially in Larry's classroom. Yeah, it's a well-oiled machine. <laughs> I still remember. I almost got teary-eyed when I saw your tweet, uh, Larry, a few weeks, months ago, and you were like, "I'm really tired today." And then, like last year, you tweeted like, "Today I was really, I was really impatient," and I was like, "Okay, so, so it is okay to have a bad day. If Larry, <laughs> if Larry has a bad day, I can have a bad day. I can do this." Yeah, it's a rough year, pandemic fueled year. It was a rough year for everybody. Oh, let me share this quote. Um, well, one, I think everyone now, the whole world, appreciates teachers more. Because they finally get to see what we do in our classes with our kids, right? Even though we're on Zoom, even though we're on Google Meet, now parents can actually see the kind of work they were doing with their kids. And so, and secondly, I think there's a quote I want to share. It's an Irish quote that goes, "If we can winter in this season, we can summer anywhere." So for the last 15 months, teachers have wintered with their kids, and now we can summer anywhere. Nice, Very nice high. thought, reflection. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's start with this. Uh, can I ask each of you to share an experience that has informed your practice today? I'll let Katie go first. Gosh, I know, and I was thinking there's, you know, my students are constantly and colleagues are constantly informing my practice. But one thing that um, early on in my teaching, I uh join the writing project um and so i i am part of the area three writing project which is housed at uc davis um and as a student teacher i was kind of you know brought into the writing project and just that model of teachers teaching other teachers that teachers can be experts are experts um and also the idea that we as writers um, need to write alongside our students uh, and that whole idea of learning alongside our students and you know doing and modeling and all of that just made so much sense to me in the beginning and then has really continued to serve me because that community um, is just full of so many amazing educators who are in it for the long haul are you know just teaching each other and um yeah so i would say i would say the writing project has has just been a great community and has grounded me in a lot of really awesome practices I've heard of so many positive things about the writing project. I was part of the writing. I wasn't part of the writing project in New Orleans, but I knew okay. about it. Yeah. And so the 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 teachers that came from the program, they just raved about it being one of the most effective, fulfilling learning experience they they had as teachers. Absolutely, absolutely. It's all yep. about the community. It is. It is. And teachers right. teaching other teachers. Right. Right. You know, sharing practices and supporting right. each other. Right. And sharing beliefs. Yes. Yes. Grounded in the same philosophies. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Thank you. Larry? The experience that I'm going to share is actually uh, one that I had prior to becoming a teacher. Uh, 
for 19 years, I was a community organizer. And uh, one day, uh, well, we had had a several months long, almost a year long, huge political fight uh, led by uh, low income uh, English language learners, basically immigrants in a, in a rural town and uh, to get affordable housing, to get an affordable housing uh, complex built. And finally, after many political battles, it was came time for the groundbreaking. We, you know, we won. And one of the leaders of the fight who was a um, Spanish speaking immigrant, Lupe, she got up on the stage, we had a little stage and had all the city council people there. And, and she said, well, you know, this is a great day, right? I made, I'm going to be able to own my first home. All, you know, my uh, friends and colleagues will be able to own their first home. It's a great victory. But the real victory is the fact that I now feel comfortable standing up, up on the stage speaking. I feel comfortable negotiating as an equal with city and state officials. I, my, my children can see me do this. I can write a speech. I can, um, I know how to think critically and strategically that that is the, those are the real victories. And I think that that is what, that's the, the kind of message that uh, I like to focus on in the classroom that yes, we, I want my students to learn English. I want them to learn the content, but more importantly, I want them to see the leadership potential within them. I want them to see what they are capable of doing, what they are capable of doing while they, when they work with others, um, that by focusing on those kind of leadership potential, students can become even better learners of the content. Larry, I know that your story is that of a community organizer. And now that you're a teacher, I would say that you are still organizing the community in a different way. Right. So well, I like to think that. Thank you. <laughs> so let's start with your congratulations on getting your second version, second edition of your book, the ESL ELL Teachers Survival Guide. So let's talk about uh, the second edition. So what was the seed for the second edition or the first one, if you want to talk about it? Well, I think... You know, we, we've written a couple of books since then, um, but as teachers, we're always growing and learning from our mistakes and our successes. And uh, there, we've had a, a lot of at least our mistakes since uh, that. It's been over 10 years since we wrote this and we wanted to share that not only for other people to learn but for us to be able to process it and as you know we feel like there were a lot of topics that we did not cover in the first edition that we invited 
uh, talented colleagues like yourself to contribute your reflections and your wisdom to make the book an even better one. And for us, writing writing books makes us better teachers. And, you know, so we, that is always a seed for us because um, we definitely don't, you know, do it for the money or fame. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ride on Larry's coattails for the fame, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it helps you know, our, our own practice and collaborating together has, you know, over the years just really has made us stronger teachers for our students. Right. And, and it helps us so we don't lose stuff. Right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, geez. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, trying to find stuff in my Google drive is like a, a maze oftentimes. So, you know, we put all our best stuff. I mean, as you know, for all of our books, we put all the, the, the figures, all the student handouts are online free for everybody. You don't have to buy the book. So we, I know, I know where my stuff is. <laughs> I've never heard about that before. Someone said, Oh, I write a book. Why? To keep myself organized. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I love it. Well, that just really speaks to, okay, the things that I do are working and the things that I do, I, I share with teachers. And so that's actually why it's not like, I think this might work. Here's an article that I read from a professor. Let me create the structure. Oh, I didn't really try it out. Yeah. All right. And you're really saying, I absolutely tried this out. This can work for your kids if you applied it to your own context. Oh yeah, if, if, I think if we put out, if we so often the stuff we design in theory, when we try to apply it, we realize that a lot of it doesn't work the way we originally developed it theoretically, right? So then uh, we have to revise it. I, I mean, I can't imagine putting out a book of recommendations or lessons that we haven't done multiple times already. Right, right. Yeah. It's like and we and we know that that the teachers out there reading are going to make our things even better. You know, they're going to take it to levels that we never even thought of. Right. And and you share that so freely on Twitter, and people are you're really you're giving people a foundation to say, hey, go go play with this. Go try this on your own. And that's what's, that's what I think that's why people really appreciate it. I mean, I'm looking, I'm thinking about your ELL toolkit and I love the way it's structured. It's like reading, writing, speaking, here are the strategies, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, this is all you need, right? <laughs> it's so effective. Let's talk about, um, so your second edition is different than your first one, which you invited uh, expert teachers in the field there are just amazing teachers in the field who are contributing to your book. Would you run through the different chapters? So the first part of the book, it's a, a couple of chapters, sort of the big picture of ELL instruction. You know, what does the data say? Um, and then overall, how to create, the second one, how to create a positive and effective learning environment. And then the, the second, section which includes two chapters is on teaching beginning beginning ells and 
that chapter just lists and briefly describes and gives an, a, a quick example of our go-to strategies. You know, not the zillions of different strategies that we try now and then, but what are our go-to strategies like picture word inductive model, language experience approach, um, you, you know, songs. And then the next chapter is basically a year-long curriculum for teaching beginner ELLs, beginner ELLs on applying those strategies thematically in different themes with a zillion student handouts. Uh, and then our the third section is doing that same thing with teaching intermediate ELLs, a list of our go-to strategies and then what that looks like in a year-long curriculum. Uh, and then it's a, it's a big book, okay? So our book <laughs> is about twice, at least twice the size of the original one. Wow. So uh, I know when we first began looking at the idea of doing a second edition, our publisher says, well, typical second editions basically just have, you know, 30% of the existing content is a little different, right? And so for us, um, about... 50% of our original content is different. Plus we've added, we've doubled, you know, we've added like twice as much new stuff. Uh, then we have a chapter, uh, the a next section on teaching ELLs in the content areas, a chapter on teaching ELLs in the mainstream classroom, supporting them, a chapter on social studies, and then is that's where we get the sort of the first guest chapters. We had a, a we had a chapter on teaching science in our first edition, uh, and that chapter will remain freely available online. Uh, but we had uh, Stephen Flonor write a new chapter on that, and then on teaching math, the same thing. We will take that old chapter, put it online, and we have Cindy Garcia. ELL teacher from Texas who's written a, a new uh, chapter on teaching math. And Stephen did it in the context of the next generation of science standards. Cindy did it in the context of Common Core. So those are just the, those are just the first 10 chapters. And then I'll leave it to Katie to talk about the remaining 15. Right. <laughs> I know. What? Yeah. <laughs> It is quite a big book. And so part five um, focuses on working with specific groups of ELLs. So we have a chapter on teaching long-term English learners. And then this is just where I, I feel like the all-star team starts. We've got, you know, a chapter on working with uh, elementary ELLs by Valentina Gonzalez. Uh, we have a chapter on teaching adult ELLs by Antoinette Perez. Um, we have a chapter on teaching ELLs with learning differences written by Jessica Bell. Um, so, th and those are all new, new chapters. And then part six of the book 
um, further strategies to ensure success, we are going to have a chapter, a new chapter on culturally responsive teaching. We have a chapter on addressing challenges and additional opportunities. And that chapter was in the first edition, but we've added a lot to that chapter. We have a fantastic chapter on home language by you, Ton, which is awesome. Um, I think it's people are really going to get a lot out of that chapter. Um, we have a chapter on learning games, on assessing English language learners. And then Carol Salva um, has done a really cool chapter kind of taking a different look at PD um, and talking about reflective teaching. But that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a part seven. Part seven, uh, teaching English online and around the world. Um, so we, we wrote a chapter on distance learning, which is already available, um, which was published last year. Um, and I, I should say last school year, at the end of last school year. Um, we have another chapter by Ton. We're so lucky to have two chapters from you um, on teaching English internationally. And then Jenny Vo is adding a chapter for us on non-native English speakers teaching English, which is really cool. So yeah, a lot, a lot of new stuff, like Larry said, we're really excited about it. And we're really honored to have so many amazing contributors. Right. Just looking at the structure of your book, I just really do feel like it lives up to the name of the book, a survival guide. And mm -hmm. it really has every single thing that we need as teachers. And it might start with like the tip tip of the iceberg, but it gives gives us a, like a teaser into that topic, such as culturally responsive instruction, such as working with adult EL, such as working with uh, students who identified as long term English learners, beginners. I mean, you just and and the gamut of expert teachers that you have, I'm just so impressed. Valentina, uh, Dr. Stephen Fleener, Jennifer uh, Jennifer Vo, Cindy Garcia, and just and on and on and on. It's just so impressive. You've really gathered gathered the field together to share. Yeah, it's 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 great. I mean, we've learned a lot from reading and writing it. I, I particularly really appreciate the chapter that you uh, that you have Jennifer Vo sharing because there are so many language specialists out there who are non who are like me who are, who weren't born into an English speaking community. Uh, so uh, so. We now know that people who are language specialists who come from marginalized identities often experience a lot of pushback. And so I'm so happy that you have Jennifer to share that experience from a very niche group of teachers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy this. I mean, it's especially outside of the U.S., there's this real discrimination against non-native English speakers. I mean, it's like, in many ways, uh, the 
people who have gone through the experience of learning a new language, just common sense, are better equipped to help learners of that language acquire it. I mean, it's 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 common sense, right? <laughs> right. So, so let's talk about uh, two of highlights of your of the book. There are so many things that I want to talk to you about, but would you mind picking two to highlight for uh, listeners? Sure. I um, I think for me the um one of the chapters on teaching intermediate ells um lays out how we scaffold writing um and in particular you know argument writing how students can produce um high level writing and thinking and the way that we support that. Um, we have a unit plan, a problem solution unit plan that we use every year with our students um, and just they help us make it even better. Um, and then we have a couple of, you know, lesson plans for scaffolding writing um, analytical response to text using a college level prompt um, and how we break that down with students um, and the chapter has you know different uh, writing frames and writing structures that we use um, and also how we you know teach students that you know yes we give them the support but you know there's no formula for writing that or a certain number of paragraphs or um you know only one genre and that you know in real world writing different genres are blended and paragraphs are different lengths and just really you know helping them build confidence as writers so, uh, Katie, can you walk us through that unit a little bit more, like the, the structure of how to help intermediate uh, students write? Sure. So we um, kind of organize it in terms of all of the, you know, academic language that we build and we tap into prior knowledge and building background knowledge. Um, and how you know students can write and talk and read um and really then we move into having students select um something that you know is a problem either in their own life or in the community that that they you know feel passionate about and want to do more learning about and so um we give you know ways for helping them research uh which can be a challenge you know um how to you know wade through everything and actually 
find useful research. They do interviews um, and we scaffold that activity. Um, and then just the writing process, we give some tips on peer review. We've tried a lot <laughs> with peer review of writing um, that hasn't worked. And so we kind of give, you know, our, a couple of things that we do that really work with students um, to help each other, you know, with feedback and editing as well um, and our own teacher feedback. So we kind of divide it with teacher feedback, peer feedback. Um, I'm trying to think, Larry, is there, what else would be important to say? Uh, no, I mean, I think it's a fairly complete model that uh, even though it is focused on problem solution, it's a model that could be used for pretty much any genre mm -hmm. that a teacher was going to teach. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we didn't, we didn't put complete unit plans for every genre, but uh, definitely that can be applied. And certainly in our other books, we have had unit plans on argument and other genres. Right, right. I think what you're saying is like, there is in the world of working with English learners, there's comprehensible input, and then there's comprehensible output. I think what you're saying in this chapter is, we have helped, we provide an example of how to structure comprehensible output for kids. And then you're saying this example, you have to take the principles from our example and create it for other uh, genres instead of uh, problem solution, it can be cause and effect. It can be uh, narrating beginning, middle and end, right? You're, you're just saying, take these principles, see how we have applied them. Now go and apply it to other types of writing genre because you're structuring, the principles are the same, even though the writing genre is different. You're trying to help kids structure the output. You Larry, nailed it, Don. <laughs> All right, Larry, your turn. What is, what is something you want to highlight from the book? Uh, well, I think I'll, I'll highlight two briefly. You know, one, I think Stefan Flanor's chapter on science instruction is really good. In fact, uh, our science department used his book on science instruction for ELLs as a book study. So, uh, and his strategies are applicable in all, all content areas. Uh, and so I think that people will, uh, people who are science instructors and non-science instructors will find those strategies helpful. Um, and I think our, our chapter on additional opportunities and challenges people will find particularly helpful. It's, it's sort of a, it's not designed to be complete responses to all the challenges, but it gives people basic, uh, basic tools and ideas and how to respond to them. And those 
include student motivation, you know, classroom management, uh, error correction, social emotional learning, uh, multi-level classes, uh, let's see, co-teaching, we're working with an aide, uh, working with students with limited or interrupted formal education, SLIFES, uh, you know, evaluating uh, international transcripts. I mean, those are sort of just uh, challenges that all of us deal with. And it was good, it was, you know, it was good for us to have to go through each of them as well to come up with what, you know, how we handle it and what we can do differently and in better ways. And you spoke about in that in the chapter of challenges, you talked about student motivation. And I know that you you also have another book coming out about student motivation. So uh, I always look to your uh, Edutopia article on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, and that comes out of, I think, again, my organizing experience. So that, yeah, it will be the fourth in fourth book in my series on student motivation. So, uh, and, but right now I just want to get this done. <laughs> Katie. So, and then I'm trying to get Katie to do another book after that. So, and, uh, she's excited about that prospect. Um, we've agreed not to talk about that until <laughs> this one is done. <laughs> Well, we await that other one too, Katie. <laughs> oh, the pressure. <laughs> uh, Larry, can I circle back to the conversation uh, of the chapter with uh, Dr. Stephen Fleener about science? Can you talk more about that? Like what can teachers take from that chapter uh, from Dr. Fleener? Well, I, I think there are so many uh, ranging just from, you know, how to uh, help students develop academic vocabulary understanding, right? I mean, and that, that's a challenge in all content areas. And, you know, the strategies that he recommends, uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, use of graphic organizer, pre-teaching, using cognates, they're all, you know, just good strategies that it's, that I think a lot of, a lot of teachers know but you know we forget right in the midst of stuff right we i mean we can't think of everything i know that there's plenty of research done on the number of decisions that a teacher individual teacher has to make during the day and it's an astronomical astronomical number uh and i think what people will find helpful in like for example in this chapter is i mean the chapter just take a few i mean once you read it, it just takes a few minutes to just glance through it Right before a lesson, and, and it's just a refresher. Uh, and I mean, I'm sure that once people read that chapter, just as after people read the chapters that you wrote and the chapters that Carol wrote and Valentina wrote, uh, that they people will want to buy the books that all you know that you folks have written, including the book that you have coming up in September that Katie and I uh, you know, wrote a 
preface to and are looking forward I'm looking forward to doing an, uh, an interview with you folks for Ed Week. We are so honored to have been blessed by two of the highest gurus in the field. <laughs> <laughs> well, the great thing about the chapters is you always want people leaving wanting more. And uh, I think those chapters serve two purposes. One, they make our book a lot better. By the way, it's three purposes. They make our book a lot better. Two, they help teachers uh, in the classroom. And three, they will hopefully uh, entice, you know, get people more intrigued to want more. Because each of your chapters can be a book in itself. Mm -hmm. And yet the way you're saying, okay, we're, we're not trying to cover all of culturally responsive instruction in this one chapter. We're trying to give you a, a starter into mm -hmm. it. Because this is, again, a survival guide. Mm -hmm. And so we're just taking a little bit, little bit, little bit, and then having people move into the path that, that, that they need to take for themselves. Right. Let's... Can you talk a little bit more about the data at the beginning of the research? And then, um, so, because it's been 10 years ago, how has the data changed? And then also, can we talk about the positive learning environment and then we'll end the podcast? Well, in terms of the data, we are, as we speak, working on that chapter. So, um, uh, you know, clearly, and, and uh, I can speak a little bit to it and then turn it over to Katie. So I don't think... We're not trying to hold back, but we have we have <laughs> we have six chapters out of the twenty-five left to finalize, and that is one of those one of those chapters. Clearly, the numbers of ELLs have grown, though uh, they have not grown as much as they had in previous years, partially because of the xenophobic uh, policies of the Trump administrations uh, in uh, not allowing, you know, refugee immigrants to uh, enter the U.S., but hopefully, I think that'll change. But the, uh, but they have grown, and you know there continue to be large numbers of long-term ELLs, and there continues to be uh, not clear ideas from schools about how to support long-term ELLs, which hopefully our book can try to help respond to. Katie, what are what are your reflections on what we're doing so far, what we've learned so far about the data? Well, just, yeah, that it's, I mean, we're updating <laughs> a lot because it was 2012 and I can't believe that it doesn't seem like it's been that long. Um, so yeah, we're just updating a lot of the, obviously the statistics also, you know, looking at, um, a lot has changed in the conversation, um, in terms of labeling English language learners, um, you know, and, and I mean, unfortunately in the Trump era, it was, you know, a lot of regression around, you know, the language used for immigrants and 
peoples, you know, who speak another language other than English. Um, and that, thank goodness, is changing kind of back with the Biden administration. Um, so, yeah, looking at just those larger pieces in that in that first chapter. Um, and then, you know, it's interesting because we have a section in that chapter um, kind of a do's and don'ts and best practices. And a lot of those haven't changed, you know, <laughs> modeling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait time. Still important. Um, but we're we're updating the research um, around some of those best practices, too. And something that stays the same throughout the years is creating a positive learning environment for students. Would you talk yes. about that? Yes. And um, I think, you know, building relationships, we talk about, well, that's number one. Um, but we also discuss helping students build relationships with each other right. um, and building healthy relationships with parents and um, inviting them in to a system that, you know, is often unwelcoming and, and how to do that. Larry, I think anything else to say about that? Well, I think that in that chapter and throughout the book, the main theme of all our books and all of our teaching is focusing on and, and looking at students through the lens of assets instead of deficits. Um, you know, looking at it at just as in your chapter, Don, you highlight the the assets of a of a student's home language, and we look at the the, the so many assets, the re resilience. I mean, lots of research has shown that ELLs tend to have. Um, higher a greater sense of resilience and growth mindset and creativity based on their experiences so uh i know that one of my favorite stories about deficits or and, and assets was that uh teaching um the colonialization of of california by the spaniards to a a class, a mixed class of, of Hmong refugees and um, Central Americans. And one of the questions I asked were, well, if you were a, a Native American, enslaved Native American, basically living in some of the missions, would you uh, fight, stay, you know, fight, or would you just try to try to escape? And it was it was very interesting that all of the the students who really certain hadn't been in that situation were very clear how oh, we would fight, right? We wouldn't try to escape. Whereas many of the Hmong students whose families had chosen to escape and go, you know, escape into the jungle, uh, said, "No, we would." escape and live right right because we knew if we and that sometimes in situation we'd fight and die and it was and, and and obviously that wasn't funny but i mean it was very clear from their experience uh that they had a different a different sense and it was an extraordinary conversation uh 
between the two groups of students. Uh, and, and basically after that conversation, there was a greater understanding of, well, maybe escaping and living to fight another day is the better, is the better strategy. But it was, it was, you couldn't really have that conversation in, in pretty much any other classroom. Right. You know, the classroom did not have English language learners who hadn't had that experience and that insight. Well, you have given us so, as you said, thinking through the asset lens. Well, this book has given us so many assets to tap into and so many resources to think about. So let's end the podcast with this. I reserve this question only for people who have been in the field for many, many decades and have contributed uh, so much the field. So I take it from Oprah and she says, this I know for sure. So after your years of advocacy work and years of publishing and writing and giving to the field, what do you know for sure when it, when it comes to working with English learners? I know for sure that relationships, building relationships is number one. And and looking through a lens of assets versus deficits. I, that, you know, looking at what, who is in front of you, that they already have so much to share and so many experiences, you know, and that it's an honor it's an honor to be in their presence and to to be able to to learn from them right to hear their stories to exactly. peer into their world exactly right i feel like because uh, larry you talked about english learners becoming incredibly resilient I mean, they can teach us so much about humanity by hearing their stories and that's kind of and you talked about your central american students and your Hmong students and imagine the stories that they bring with them and what we can learn from them and not and their families too, right, right. you know. Right. Just I think about all through the years, just all of the beautiful families I've met and learned from. Exactly. So, Larry, what do you know for sure? Well, certainly I concur with what Katie said. I think from a teacher's perspective. Uh, I would say that uh, I know for sure that I will have bad days in the classroom. And I know for sure that if I just try better the next day, it will be all right. <laughs> yeah, that it always gets better. We always have bad days. We just put out positive energy, you know, positive beats negative all the time and uh, it'll just get better. Right. And students will generally forget the mistakes, the bad stuff that I did the previous day. Okay. So that's good. They're not, you know, yeah. They, 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 they do forgive and forget. And most importantly, yeah. every time you share when you have a bad day, it just means that you really care about your practice. If you didn't care, 
you wouldn't think about, oh, I didn't have a bad day. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So that just really shows that what kind of a teacher you are, and both of you, Katie and Larry. So uh, this has been such a heart expanding experience. I am so excited. Like all of your books, I devour and love and I return to like an old friend. <laughs> like, hey, how do I do this again? Oh, wait, that's right. Picture word induction model. Oh, wait, learning experience approach. Yes. And so I and we, we, and we do the same thing because we forget stuff all the time, all the time. I, I tell you, you know, I said that earlier about one of the great things with the books is so, you know, we don't keep things organized and don't forget it. That is not an exaggeration. Okay. <laughs> that's another plug for teachers to uh, create a blog because I know I go back into my own blog and be like, wait, what did I say? How did yeah, I say yeah, yeah. So again, thank you for standing beside teachers and helping us walk together on this march. You have always been, both of you are community organizers and now you're organizing in a different way. I always, always say, I always start my podcast, my work with, may this serve kids I will never meet. Larry and Katie, you have served thousands of kids you will never meet. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ton. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. If there ever was a book that lived up to its name, it would be this book. Just listening to the chapter titles, there was a sense of all the topics we can learn about. It's also like auditing all the courses offered in the master education program for people specializing in language acquisition. The red thread that runs through this podcast conversation is to see the assets of students. This concept is manifested in how we work with beginners and intermediates in content and mainstream classes. Larry and Katie share their best with us, but also bring along highly revered experts in the field to contribute their voices. I hope this will be a beloved companion as you work and advocate for multilingual students. In the next episode, we'll talk to Dr. Melissa Taylor Kenman about drama and multilingual students.